You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison from moegamer.net and I am joined by both my cat and Meg who is being fat and pointy on the sofa with me um <laughs> and my good friend chris kasky you can hear that so how are you doing today chris i'm doing well pete how are you I, i'm not bad i've got a, what appears to be an insect bite on my inner thigh though and uh oh, inner, inner thighs are a part of the body that is only supposed to be treated nicely so this is rather uncomfortable so other than that i can't really complain too much i guess so um I, I can be British and I can complain about the weather being up and down, but I'm not going to bother doing that because that's boring. Um, anyway. <laughs> talking about so, the weather is something that people who don't have anything else to talk about talk about. It's, it's true. It's true. Every time a conference call starts at work, it's always conversation about the weather and it's always the same conversation as well. <sighs> anyway, um, so we are going to be following our usual three-part formula today. We're going to be talking a bit about the news, first of all, then a bit about what we've been playing recently, and I think we've both got some interesting things to talk about there today, which is good. Um, and then for our third segment today, we are going to get... Um, what's the word? Academic, I guess? Yeah. About, about uh, RPGs and things. So um, Chris here has got some very interesting theories about RPGs and how we can define them and how we can think about them a little bit differently. Um, it's a conversation we had offline a while back, and I know that your thoughts on the subject have developed a bit since then as well. So I've been, I've been looking forward to revisiting this conversation because it was fascinating the first time we had it, and if there's more to it now, then uh, even better. So, uh, before we do that, though, let's jump into the news. And it's been a little while since we've uh, reconvened, so there's uh, quite a few bits and pieces. Um, nothing sort of super major, I don't think, but lots of sort of, oh, cool, bits of news. Um, so the first one that I've got written down here is that Grasshopper Manufacture is uh, negotiating with Marvelous to bring the earlier No More Heroes titles to new platforms. Um, so this comes after... Uh, Travis Strikes Again has been ported to PS4. I think that's out now. If it's not out at the time of recording, then it's certainly out very soon. Um, obviously, that's uh, that's on Switch as well, and I think it's coming to PC as well, if I remember correctly. Um, and also, uh, No More Heroes 3 is on the way as well, so it's a good time for this series to sort of have a, a second wind, as it were. So this is uh, this is cool i haven't actually played any of the no more heroes games yet and as we've spoken about several times suda 51 is still a little bit of a black spot in my own personal knowledge so i do have um a suda 51 feature on the sort of dockets for upcoming coverage at some point so i i, I will get to them yeah these are but interesting yeah. games and, and hopefully hopefully they do with them well it's interesting because I don't know uh, when they say mo modern con they probably just talk about the PS4. I assume maybe not the Xbox. I don't know mm -hmm. because there was a, like a revised version of the original No More Heroes on the PS3 that yeah. was compatible with the PlayStation Move controller, so it was great. And the PS4 is technically compatible with the PlayStation Move controllers. So uh -huh. yeah. So it's like I've got two thoughts on this. One, hopefully there's Move compatibility, but two. Hopefully they kind of retroactively make these games just not require the motion controls. Yeah. And then I would enjoy them even more. Yeah. Yeah, so so were the, were the motion controls fairly integral to them originally then? 
Um, they were, but not in such a way that the game would be terrible without them. Right. Okay. So, so like, right. I don't know. Like, you had like the whole like the most important motion control thing is that's like the battery on your sword has to be recharged and you have to like jerk your motion controller off to like reach oh so, your, your favorite <laughs> yeah so but, but like literally like that was the joke yeah. like you were supposed to make like jerk off motions with the controller and like, <laughs> and, like he would he would do it on the screen too when you were doing it like it was all like a like a, oh, a huge joke um oh, nice other otherwise essentially you use the motion controls to execute the finishing moves after your combos mm-hmm. so like it would you would be doing a combo and it would flash like an arrow to the right and then you have to swipe your controller to the right and he would slash to the right and it would do a finisher and th- those were like context sensitive but like i the the screen would pause when that would happen and not allow any other input but that movement so right. theor- theoretically there's no reason they can't tie that to uh, analog inputs instead mm-hmm. I, I i literally i can't think of anything that couldn't be some way tied to the basic functions of the PlayStation uh, controller. Even even the the battery recharge jerk off thing, you could just reach. You could just have that on the standard PlayStation DualShock Four because it is motion oh, yeah, sensitive. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Okay, well that, that's cool. I mean, and I mean, yeah, as you say, there's there's ways around it and. I think all the modern consoles have got motion controls now, haven't they? I'm not sure if Xbox has, but yeah, certainly PS4 and Switch, which are, let's face it, where it's going to end up, um, are more than well-equipped to be able to, to handle that sort of thing. Right. So that, so that's cool. Yeah, I, I'd definitely be up for, for those on a more modern platform, but I do also have the Wii versions if uh, if that doesn't happen in a sort of timely manner. All right. Um, next thing I've got... Um, the story's actually developed slightly since I originally po- originally posted it. Um, so back uh, at the end of July, uh, Hardcore Gaming One Hundred and One posted a tweet saying that a PS One open world mystery game called Mizerna Falls has been translated into English for the first time. Um, and this game looks quite interesting. It's sort of um, been described by various people as a, a, a proto Shenmue and a proto Deadly Premonition and that sort of thing. And yeah. A very ambitious game, um, but it transpires that the um, the fan translation that was released was just someone taking someone else's work that was uh, incomplete. Um, and it was full of bugs, it was unstable, um, and that sort of thing. And someone else just came along and released it as is. So that's actually no longer available on the original link that uh, Hardcore Gaming 101 posted because it's it's just been taken down because it's it's. I mean, it, it wasn't any good for a lot of people, it's which a is a bit of shame because the game looks quite interesting. It's um, it's got a, a a lot of these elements that we take for granted in modern open world games today, like sort of wandering around and driving cars and interacting with people and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it, it seems that unfortunately that uh, that particular patch was uh, not to be. Hmm. Um, elsewhere, though, Hardcore Gaming One Hundred and One did also post uh, that uh, Koei's Dragon and Princess, which is one of the very first Japanese role-playing games ever created, has now had a full English translation as well. And this one actually is still there and working fine. So this was originally for PC eighty eight and some other some of the other sort of proprietary Japanese PCs, and uh, a lot of people define this as the very first Japanese role-playing game. Um, so it's it's obviously fairly primitive by modern standards there's a lot of sort of text-based stuff going on um it's very 
Um, sort of like the early Ultima games in which it's sort of part text adventure, part top-down map-based stuff. Um, but it's an interesting piece of history, and you can now play it in English. So uh, check that out on romhacking.net if you uh, are interested in where the RPGs we play today came from. Some of these sprites have really jaunty poses. They look like, <laughs> they look like they're dancing or yeah, on yeah, the runway. This is very yeah. exciting. And there's a little dude in the in the turquoise outfit. He looks he looks pretty fabulous, doesn't he? He's sort of yeah, sort of voguing. <laughs> that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. And there there appears to be a mountie. Yeah, this is a great time. Good good yeah. stuff going on at the oak forest, apparently. Yes, excellent. All right, uh, continuing on, uh, we have a few more details on the collaboration between Marvelous and uh kenichiro takaki creative senran kagura who left marvelous a little while back but said he was still going to be contributing to some of his projects and uh this project that he's working on with marvelous is apparently called kandagawa jet girls and it's going to be another sort of cross media production a bit like he did with uh, valkyrie drive so it's going to be an anime and uh, a ps4 game uh, and it's centered around the idea of uh, a bunch of cute girls jet skiing um so yeah, I, I, I'm up for this. I, I enjoy jet skiing games, and I was very disappointed when Dead or Alive Extreme 3 didn't have the jet skiing that Dead or Alive Extreme 2 had. So I'm, I'm certainly up for cute girls ride jet skis again. Um, yeah, if it's if waifu wave race, like, I'm like 100%, 100% on board for this adventure. Yeah, definitely. So um, yeah, like I say, it's going to be an anime and a uh, a video game as well, and there's going to be sort of various crossovers between them. But like Valkyrie Drive did, they will sort of stand by themselves as well. And so, the basic concept seems to be pairs of girls riding on jet skis, with one of them driving the jet ski and the other one with a water gun on the back of them. So there's going to be a, a touch of um, Peach Beach Splash in there as well. So sounds like fun. Not a, not a ton of information about it yet, but we we do have some sort of key art and a bit of information about the characters and so on. Bit of Mario Kart Double Dash DNA. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, next up, um, the dungeon defense game Dungeon of the Endless is apparently coming to PS4 and Switch. I'm very pleased about this because Dungeon of the Endless is a great game. Um, have you played this at all? I have not, but it's been on my Steam wish list since time untold. It has the most beautiful aesthetic. Oh yeah, it's gorgeous. Gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. So, um, if you're not familiar with this, this is part of a series by a company called Amplitude, called um, it's just called Endless in general, and it's sort of this extraordinarily well-realized sci-fi series where they've gone into a ton of detail on sort of the lore and the history of um, sort of very space-faring races. It began with Endless Space, which was sort of a um, a kind of Master of Orion or Civ in Space type thing, um, but it was it was quite an accessible one. I don't normally get on very well with that kind of games but i got on really well with endless space um because it was it, it had some sort of strategic and mechanical depth to it but it but it was also it also didn't overwhelm you too early it was it was easy enough to understand with sort of a, a few different resource types and um it wasn't sort of free movement around the galaxy as well it was all sort of using like specific lanes between different systems and so on mm. so you could there you didn't sort of have to cover every possible eventuality in terms of strategic stuff you could sort of focus on uh, protecting yourself in important locations and that sort of thing um but over time that series has expanded to incorporate a bunch of other ones so they've done um endless legend which is uh basically even more civ like so it's down on the planet 
it unfolds in I, I think the past of the series and so it's all about sort of the dawn of a lot of the races that you see in the rest of the series and then dungeon of the endless is sort of a, a, a spin-off game that um focuses very much on a small group of characters who just happen to exist in this universe and it's it's kind of roguelikey in some ways, but it's also got elements of board games. It's got elements of tower defense and all sorts of things, and it's it's a really cool game. So, so what you do in that is you you start with a group of I think it's like two or three characters, and you send them around this dungeon that is split into various rooms, and a bit like um, a board game dungeon crawler where things are split into tiles and so on. It's all based on sort of moving between rooms and like opening a door to a new room is kind of like starting a new turn almost Uh, so so you reveal a new room and then you have the option to power that room which means you can build stuff in there and your your ultimate goal is to is to discover a path through these rooms to the exit of the level and you've then got to carry this crystal from the start of the level to the end of the level um but while you are carrying the crystal and at various points throughout your exploration of the level um enemies will come out of rooms that you haven't powered and they will start trying to attack your crystal and your your starting point and your base and your installations and that sort of thing so you have to kind of strike a good balance between exploring to find resources and treasures and other characters and that sort of thing uh protecting yourself uh with fairly limited resources and trying to make progress as well and it's it's just a really cool game and it's got lots of sort of homages to other games like there's a character in there who's very obviously samus for one thing um and um yeah it's just got this lovely lovely aesthetic that sort of combines um kind of a sort of hand-painted look in some respects with some really nice really detailed pixel art and um absolutely gorgeous lighting effects as well so it's it's sort of combining elements of retro and modern graphics and it's just a, just a beautiful looking game and it plays brilliantly as well it's tough as old boots though so be prepared for a challenge um but anything that sort of describes itself as rogue like these days you should be fairly prepared for that sort of thing but uh, yeah this is definitely a great game and i'm really glad to see it coming to consoles it's a great one for switch as they say mm. yeah this is all that <laughs> there's just something about tower defense that says perfect for lunch break yeah definitely. to me i don't know why yeah 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 that, that 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 sounds about right and i mean the sort of a single run through this game can get quite lengthy because there's a lot of floors to get through but a, a single floor of it doesn't take too long so yeah it's it, it, it can be sort of played as an ideal lunch break game but at the same time you can sit down and spend a lot more time with it if you want to as well and i just want that aesthetic on my giant tv like yes. this oversaturated neon colors yep yes good stuff all right, uh, moving on. Next one on the list, uh, you posted something about Guilty Gear. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, just in general, um, you know, since we last did our, our thing, there was Evo, <laughs> and they announced a new Guilty Gear. Uh, so, which is not abnormal for Arc System Works to announce a new game. But what's interesting about the new Guilty Gear is that they've officially put the pin in the Exerd series. So, Guilty Gear Exerd is Generation 3. That's done now. So Exerd Rev Two is it. So this is this is now officially starting Generation Four of Guilty Gear, uh, mm-hmm. which which means general genuine changes, not just to the roster and stuff, which is what happens when they iterate within a generation. But we're talking about a whole new game here. Um, right. And 
Daisuke Ishiwatari, the creator of Guilty Gear, has been very clear that they're kind of turning the whole series on its head, re-examining the mechanics, um, what they are calling a full frontal confrontation with the essence of the fighting game genre. <laughs> so I don't know what that means, but it, it's... <laughs> You know, Guilty Gear 2 was quite famously not even a fighting game. Oh, really? Yeah, so Guilty Gear 2 was almost like Smite. It was like an on... It was like a tower defense game with a MOBA that you played... Oh, okay. That you played from a third-person perspective. Yeah. So they are very famous for, like, mixing shit up a little bit with mechanics mm -hmm. when, they, when they move on between generations in this series. So... It'll, uh, I mean, they've said it's going to be a fighting game, and the footage is absolutely gobsmacking. But yeah. um, who knows what this means? So this is this is really cool. It also means if you're a bozo collector like me, now that the the storybook is closed on the generation three, you can now buy Exert Rev Two, knowing it is the most complete and final version of Guilty Gear Exert available. So yes. that's cool too. Yes, yes, because they actually released Exerd Rev 2 as a separate release, didn't they? Yes. As well as it being a, a premium download for people who had the original. So that's yep. cool. Yeah, I um I tried that game. Um Guilty there's Gear? A lot of people Yeah. Um specifically Exerd um Rev two because a lot of people said, Oh yeah, um you should try this. It's got one of the best tutorials ever. Um I uh, I couldn't clear that tutorial <laughs> well, but like saying saying guilty gear exert is accessible because it's got a good tutorial is just like saying that like calc 3 is accessible because you did calc 2 like, like it's 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 still calculus <laughs> like yeah. if you're not op if you are not a fighting game guy like guilty gear isn't the place to start and a guilty no, gear no. and a guilty gear tutorial is only going to teach you to play guilty gear yeah it's not no, going to no, teach you, you the basic distancing and timing skills you need that was exactly it i i, I got sort of like like it did a couple of sort of simple stuff that kind of lured you into a false sense of security and then they had this ridiculous bit where it was, it was sort of teaching you about air dashes and that sort of thing and there yeah. was this thing where you had to sort of dash up in between these flaming pillars and across the top of the stage without hitting the floor and that sort of thing it was just absolutely impossible for me yeah. um and so purely because i i'm not used to that kind of fighting game i feel i I'm not saying it's bad or anything like that. It just, as you say, was not a good place to start. No, and, Guilty um, Gear's focus on mobility is pretty legendary. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, st I still maintain that um, SNK Heroines is a very good game for teaching fighting game fundamentals. I know a lot of people have got very snobby about that game yeah. because of sort of its simple button inputs and stuff like that. But every time I've played that game. I've been able to focus on the fundamentals of distance, of sort of judging how far your attacks go and what attacks to use in different situations, when to block and that sort of thing. I'm normally terrible at blocking in fighting games, but in SNK Heroines, I can do that no problem. 
and so it's it's a good place to practice those skills yeah um, yeah it's a really neat game and you know it's just a classic example of what we always talk about around here is people need to evaluate games based on what that game was supposed to be not what they yeah, want, not what they wanted a game yeah. to be and from the very beginning people talked about snk heroines as a, as a sort of primer fighting game for people who aren't great at fighting games yeah, so like, yeah absolutely and then and then it released and people were expecting it to be king of fighters or whatever and it wasn't and yeah so um but yeah that's uh getting off the point slightly but yeah it, it is it is good from that regard certainly okay um moving on you want to say some words about indivisible because i know you know more about this than i do yeah so uh, i mean full disclosure i am a go uh whatever whatever crowdfunding platform indivisible was on indigo mm-hmm. no i think so i was a backer for indivisible but uh indivisible is the rpg from the creators of Skullgirls. it has beautiful hand-drawn animation loads of really interesting characters to collect and a fundamental gameplay design inspired by valkyrie profile um it's been in the cooker for quite a while and we now have an october release date for it so very exciting mm-hmm. yeah October is another one of those months that there's a lot of good stuff coming out. Yeah, September, October, <laughs> November this year is a tremendous problem. Between yeah. this and Demon X Machina, uh, Destiny Connect, Trails of Cold Steel 3. Astral Chain. Oh, yeah. Well, Astral Chain is this month, technically. Yeah, yeah. But it's like the 30th, <laughs> right? So, yeah. Yeah. And a Collection of Mana, the physical release of Collection of Mana is the last week of August as well. Yeah. Whoever decided Astral Chain and collect and that and that need to launch in the same week clearly wanted to put me in a body bag. <laughs> yeah. Um, talking of October, uh, apparently Mary Skelter Two is coming to Nintendo eShop on October the twenty October October the twenty second uh, in North America. Um, so this is this is going to be digital only, I think, which is a real shame. Um, which also kind of surprising because I know that Mary Skelter, the first one, was one of Compile Heart's more well-received ones, even by people who don't normally like their stuff. So it kind of surprises me that this is a, this is just getting a digital release. Um, but well, there you go. It's uh, it's coming October twenty-second in North America and October the twenty-third in Europe, apparently. So um, do we yeah. know if there's going to be an Asian version of this? Uh, it doesn't say in the article I'm reading right now. Um, there may well be, um, so it'll be worth keeping an eye on that, certainly. I haven't seen any word of it so far, uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Sometimes those things tend to happen quite suddenly, so, mm-hmm. uh, I'm just gonna have a quick look now, actually. It was like so, that with Onanaki. I, I really, like, I, I, we were, like, specifically talking about how bummed I was that Onanaki wasn't gonna get a physical release. And then I got an email from Play Asia, like just announced, like dual English, <laughs> Japanese, Onanaki. But your yeah. region is getting a physical release, right? Like exclusively through the Square Enix store. Yeah, they're, they're doing a limited pressing of it through Square Enix's European store. So um, I, I haven't actually ordered that yet because I've already. I, I said I wasn't going to spend any money on games this month, and then probably spent a bunch of money on games. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, if you're in Europe or you have some means of ordering from Europe, you can get it from the Square Enix European store. I think it's still in stock at the moment, so have a look at that. So I'm uh, on Play Asia and I'm looking at Mary Skelter 2, uh, and the Switch and PS4 versions have Asian versions, but only with Chinese subs. So right, it doesn't right, appear right. to be an English translation. But 
if the English translation exists, it's only a matter of time before they press it over there. They always do. Yeah. Yeah. That that would be good. I, I I would like. I still haven't played the first one, but I would I would like to have the second one in in a package on a cartridge as well. That would well, then you'll get the first right if you get the second one includes the first one. Yes. Yeah. A slightly revamped version of the first one, so you'll have it all on the Switch then, or whatever platform yes. you get it on. Yes. So that's cool. Okay. All right. Uh, continuing on. Uh, apparently, uh, going forward, um, Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft would all require uh, any publishers who are using uh, loot boxes in their games to disclose the odds for the various stuff that are in them. Um, so this is also um, follows the ESRB um, starting to add a content descriptor on software packages that include microtransactions. Um, and they're aiming for these practices to be incorporated um, beginning next year in 2020. So, I mean, obviously, I would rather loot boxes weren't a thing in the first place. Mm. But this is uh, this is a step. I don't know if it's a step in the right direction, but it's certainly a step. Um, this has actually been happening in uh, mobile games for quite a while. So, back in 2017, um, Apple... Uh, demanded that any games that have gacha elements disclose the odds for the various rarities of things and uh, google started doing that on google play earlier this year so it's becoming a more widespread thing so that these games that do incorporate sort of quasi gambling elements will are now obliged to tell you the odds of getting stuff but it's still it's still a shitty mechanic <laughs> for sure yeah so um yeah, not a lot more to say on that, really, but that's uh, that's a thing that's going to be happening going forward. It's sad that we need it, but there we go. Um, moving on, uh, Grandia HD Collection, uh, I was going to say will arrive, but it's actually out now. came yes. out yesterday yep. at the time of recording, so that is now available on Switch. contains Grandia 1 and Grandia 2 um, in sort of revamped, remastered, high-definition one. Grandia 1 has the Japanese voiceover, if I remember correctly as well, which is the first time that's happened with the localization, because the original had um, a rather questionable dub that <laughs> some people like. But, um, you know, if if you've ever heard the Japanese voices for the original Grandia, it's very tough to go back to that dub. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's uh, that's come out now. Um I, I haven't seen a lot of a lot of people sort of giving impressions on that yet. I know that when they were previewing it, some people were a little bit concerned over the original Grandia sort of appearing to have mandatory screen filters and stuff on it. I don't know if that's still a thing, mm. but that, that's that's something to have a look at if that's something that concerns you. The original um, Grandia is such a beautiful game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't you don't want to ruin that by smearing Vaseline all over it, do you? So, um, and then Grandia Two, I think, Just is Venus. sort of. <laughs> yeah but in 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 a slightly different way but uh yeah grandia 2 i think is sort of based on the pc port that came out a while back as well um with a few tweaks here and there so um yeah have a look at that i mean it's it, it's quite a pricey collection uh from what i've seen it's it's 35.99 over here in europe um but i mean those are two great games and two massive games as well so mm -hmm. you, you will in if you are the sort of person who calculates pounds per hour of entertainment or whatever you, you're getting your money's worth with that even though they are old games and they have amazing music so yes yeah, yeah i mean these yeah. games are wow. we talked about how much we love grandia on our uh, battle sequence mechanics episode mm -hmm. just it's yes. the best of the best it really is yeah. 
Yes, and it's it's great to see it making a comeback as well because it's it's one of those series that people sort of always talk about as being really good, and then for a long time it was just completely dormant, and the the only way to get hold of it was through sort of buying a retro copy on on yeah. one of the original platforms it came out for. So it's really nice to see it sort of resurrected like this. I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I saw this comment years ago because yeah. because if you buy Ragnarok Odyssey Ace, which is also uh, published by Gung Ho, mm-hmm. as this collection is Gung, so Gung Ho owns Game Arts, yeah, and Ragnarok Odyssey Ace was actually developed by Game Arts, and there's uh, Fina and Justin cosmetic costume parts you can get in Ragnarok oh, Odyssey right. Ace. So yeah, I was always yeah. like, is this a secret? Like, am I, is, is, <laughs> is Grandia is Grandia making a return? But unfortunately, that was not the case with the Wild Arms costumes that were in Soul Sacrifice. So, oh. so. oh well, you never know; it might still happen. It might still happen, but uh, well, have to wait and see, I guess. <sighs> so yeah, I'm 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 looking forward to revisiting those at some point. I'm I'm gonna hold off for now. Um, it would be nice to see a package release of those. Yeah. I'm not sure that's going to happen in this case, but... They've um, outright said it's not. Like, Gung Ho yeah. is like, we are not making a physical copy of this. But, like, uh, I feel like all bets are off in Asia. Yeah. I'm buying more Asian games, like, games from Asia region anymore than I am Amer- yeah. American ones, it seems. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's the Asian region stuff, and then there's also... Limited run companies as well, aren't there? Which That's yeah. It's in rare. some in some cases, companies who have said we're not going to do a physical run of this, th- they haven't necessarily ruled out partnering with someone like Limited Run at a later date. So I would pay like sixty dollars for this collection. Yeah, yeah. To ha- imagine to have- like a, a really nice limited edition of it in a nice box with a soundtrack CD, art book, that sort of thing. That's all I need from it. That'd be lovely. Yeah, I would happily pay that much money for it. But uh, yeah, we can dream. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Koei Tecmo has trademarked a bunch of Musou-related stuff. Uh, we don't know what any of them are yet, uh, but we know what the, the names of them are. So we've got Isekai Musou, Gakuen Musou, Tensei Musou, Musou Play, and Musou Mode. So uh, Isekai Musou refers to sort of uh, otherworld Musou. And so that's led to all sorts of speculation, none of which has been confirmed, I would like to emphasize, but all sorts of speculation over what that might mean. So it could be something to do with the trends for isekai anime and manga and light novels at the moment, uh, which would be cool because it might be able to incorporate characters from stuff like Sword Art Online, Excel World, Konosuba, Danmachi, all that sort of thing. Overlord! Uh, Oh, Overlord, all the Overlord, that one. all the Overlord characters would be so perfect for a Musou game. They're so yes. like, distinct in their design. Yes, yes. Did you know there's an Overlord um, Picross game? By the way, I did see that. Yeah, <laughs> it's adorable. Um, but yes, yes. So um, another another theory I've seen about this is that it might be something to do with the anime uh, Isekai Quartet. Yes, which has apparently been really popular. Um, and so that is that is an anime that incorporates a bunch of characters from various isekai anime in a sort of uh, chibi form and then they sort of get up to all sorts of shenanigans and that sort of thing but apparently that's been really successful and really popular so uh, if they could get the be. license for that that would be cool um it's got like Gakuen three of Mus- my favorite shows from like the past two years in it. like all mashed yeah. up like saga yeah. of tanya the evil's in there too yes yes 
Yeah, so, so that would be interesting. I mean, that's got a ready-made sort of cast of characters from several different sources as well. So again, that would be ideal for uh, a Musou type of thing. Uh, so Gaku and Musou uh, basically translate to Musou Academy. So uh, no idea what that could mean. Uh, like I say, my, my sort of favorite mental image of that at the moment is sort of all the Three Kingdoms lot being at high school uh, before I remembered that that was just Iki Tusen. Uh, yo, there's nothing wrong with Iki Tosin. <laughs> I, I love Iki Tosin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's that. Um, Tensei Muso, um, a lot of people are taking great pains to point out that uh, Atlas would have trademarked this if this was anything to do with Shin Megami Tensei. Uh, so this is likely something else. Tensei translates to reincarnation, basically. Uh, so this is basically reincarnation warriors, whatever that might be. So no idea what that is. And as for Muso play and Muso mode, that could be anyone's guess. I mean, Muso mode could just be trademarking the game mode in these games. So right. we have to wait and see. But um, it's it's interesting that these these all sort of came out together. Um, and so and it's it's fun to speculate sometimes. Now alongside this news as well, um, it was also revealed that uh, the trademark has been. Uh, renewed or a new one has been put up for Brigandine um, which was a, a strategy RPG on PS1 wasn't it is that right? Yes correct Yes, there was um, a re-release so on like the PS2 I think but that didn't come to the west right yeah so they've they've trademarked Brigandine Lunasia Senki or Record of Lunasia War Lunasia War or however you pronounce it um, so yeah, anyone's guess what that is at the minute, but that that is a trademark that's been filed. So we may well be seeing something new from um, Brigandine at some point. I mean, that would be great. This Brigandine is an entry in a genre that has long died. Mm-hmm. You do not really see um, a lot of what I would call grand strategy games anymore. Um, yeah, specifically in the mold of the original Dragon Force on the Saturn. So like, and Brigandine mm-hmm. is like classic. Like, you have a huge map with nodes that represent like the different territories that you yes. like own or whatever, and then you branch off and you move units across that map. And then when right. they bump into other units in that map, you actually have like, a, like almost like regular turn-based battles, kind of mm-hmm. like yeah. that. That style of grand scale role-playing game from japan is not something we see often outside of koei tecmo's output of like nobunaga's ambition and like romance of the three kingdoms yes and there's a, there's a couple of sort of um Erige on pc that yeah. follow that mold as well so there's uh, sengoku rants which is uh well on the way to being released by manga gamer um there's au senki as well uh i can't remember who that's by but um yeah, that's that's also a similar sort of thing, and it, uh, that incorporates sort of cute girl Three Kingdoms uh, stuff in it as well. So very appealing. Um, yeah, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. I hope it's not a mobile game. It probably will be a mobile game, but you never know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we we live in a world where we're getting Langrisser remakes next year. Yes, that's true. So like anything also- is possible. Yes, and we're also living in a world where these these mobile games can end up revitalizing interest in a series and making enough money for a company to be able to do a proper new console release of stuff as well. Uh, so, having uh, a really bad thing. Yeah, it was like yeah. a slow dial-up with Langrisser. We had that we had mo- like a mobile game and that crappy 3DS game, and then like all of that eventually led to like the best case scenario, which is yeah. <laughs> this beautiful collection we're getting next year so yeah 
the patient man always wins. Yeah. All right. Uh, continuing on, we got a couple of bits and pieces from Way Forward. Uh, first one is they announced a new game called Vitamin Connection for Switch. Um, not a lot of um, sort of actual sort of screenshots or video or anything from this, but it sounds like this is going to be uh, a one or two player. I think it's like a, a sort of platform shooter from the sound of things, and there's lots of mini games and puzzles and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's this is one of several games where WayForward are partnering with Limited Run Games to do the package release of this. So it apparently sounds like the physical release of this is going to come first, followed by the digital release. Um, which is an interesting way of doing things. And this, this is going to be exclusive to Switch as well. Yeah. When uh, what's so interesting to remember about this game is um, just further evidence of how like close Limited Run and WayForward have become in that um, yes. Limited Run actually funded this game. Oh really? Yeah, like this is this, so. This isn't just an instance of like limited runs going to be publishing it. Like this is a, this is limited runs game that Way Forward developed. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm interested to see how this turns out. Is it's it's. I mean, there's there's just a bit of key art for it at the moment, but that's that's pretty cute in itself. And you know, Way Way Forward's one of those companies that I'm pretty inclined to trust. Whatever they do now, yeah. so yeah. Um, this this should be a good time. Um, alongside that, we've had uh, a little bit more information about uh, Shantae. So Shantae and the Seven Sirens is the official name for Shantae Five. A um, few new bits and pieces of information about it as well. Um, so. What have we got about this one? So this is coming to Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, PC, and Apple Arcade. That thing you'd all forgotten existed. Um, <laughs> uh, so it sounds like there's going to be an interconnected world. So it sounds like they're going back to the open structure 2D platform style. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> um, there's creature transformations again like there have been in the classic ones so you've now got a newt form and some other aquatic forms as well apparently whatever that means um, it'll run in 4k on devices that support 4k so you'll be happy with your shiny new tv um, all the usual characters are coming back so we've got rotty top sky bolo and risky boots plus some new ones as well so they've they've shown a bit of key art um, that shows some new female characters who are presumably some of the seven sirens um, they claim to have gorgeously animated TV style cutscenes which is nice uh, because it looks like they're going for a similar kind of look to uh, Shantae Half Genie Hero but it looks kind of like from what I've seen anyway it looks kind of like they're going back to 2D backdrops yeah, rather they're, than yeah, 3D backdrops drops. yeah um so that's nice. If you combine that with the gorgeous animation that we had in Half Genie Hero, um, and we've got a yeah, we got a lovely looking game here. So my question right. is, if there's gorgeously animated TV style cutscenes, are they all going to be done by Studio Trigger, like that beautiful opening animation? Yeah, that's a good question. Very good question. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? But yeah, that that opening sequence is is pretty stunning, isn't it? So, I've watched that like a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah god can you imagine hey chris like your favorite animation studio in the history of ever is working on one of your favorite game franchises in the history of ever like <laughs> hey, i was totally i totally made my day when that happened oh uh, yeah definitely uh there was something else about way forward wasn't it what what, what was it uh, uh, i don't remember oh uh, was it was it just confirming that 
um, River City Girls was was yeah, getting. That's it. Yeah. Release. Yeah. Yeah. So River City Girls uh, pre-orders are opening for River City Girls at limited run, beginning on August thirtieth, and it's going yes. to be a big pre-order. It's going to be a four-week pre-order window. Mm-hmm. So there's literally no excuse not to buy this game. And, okay. and all copies will include a one disc soundtrack sampler. So even if you don't oh. get even if you don't get the limited edition box set, you're gonna get some music for your troubles. Yeah. Yeah. This this looks like such a cool project. It's just I mean it looks like a great game and there's like there's all sorts of interesting people getting involved with it as well. Like I know that um, I don't know if you're familiar with Game Grumps at all on YouTube, but um, I know that, that one of the guys on there, Aaron Hansen, has been involved with this as well. I think he's doing some voice acting in it. Oh, that's cool. Um, They're big Kunio so yeah, they, Kun fans, right, over there. Game yes, Grumps, definitely. And, they, and, and they've got... Um, to, I, I don't know where it originated from, but they've, they've got their own sort of um, anime-style alter egos, the game Geru as well. So it's sort of it's sort of very much in fit, in keeping with uh, the River City Girls look and feel of things. So they're, they're very into that sort of thing, so that's cool. Um, so yeah, this is, this is going to be a really cool game, I think. Uh, there's been a bunch of new trailers and sort of character spotlights and things coming out recently. So yeah, I hope this does well, because it looks lovely. All right, uh, a couple more things. Um, THQ Nordic has apparently hired the Time Splitters co-creator to work on the return of the franchise. So a little while back, we talked about um, THQ Nordic had supposedly um, sort of renewed the Time Splitters trademarks or whatever they need to do, or bought the rights or something like that. I forget the details. Um, but yeah, what they've done is they have hired uh, a guy called Steve Ellis, uh, who used to work for Rare and Free Radical Designs. Um, and he is uh, one of the co-creators of um, the original Time Splitters games. Um, so, THQ Nordic says that Ellis has joined us to help plot the future course for this franchise. Whatever that means. Um, business speak, but whatever. So, yeah, um, it seems that sort of someone from the original franchise will be involved with whatever happens to Time Splitters after this. So, just give hopefully us an HD good. collection. Just give us an HD That'd be great. Play, play. I'd be I'd be happy with that. I don't necessarily need a good game because each of those time splitters games is massive in terms of content. So, you know, just an HD collection with all of them That'd keep me busy for years. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. On yeah. the Switch, local multiplayer. Ah, uh, yes, yes, please, yes, please. And talking of Nintendo Switch, the last one we've got uh, here is that A Hat in Time is coming to Nintendo Switch on October the 18th, and that is also getting a packaged release as well, which is cool. Yeah. Um, can't remember if this has had a packaged release already. Nope. Um, I don't think it has, has it? So, yeah, nope. yeah. Sort of Switch being the place to go if you want boxed copies of stuff. Well, the tradition continues. So Yeah, and um, the, the uh, physical release includes the DLC. Yes, yes. So this release is sort of coinciding with this new DLC, isn't it? And so the package release includes the DLC and the original game. Um, and yeah, when it comes out digitally for Switch, uh, you have to buy them separately from one another. So yes. Um, so it's looking like that's going to be twenty nine ninety nine for the digital version with the DLC for four dollars ninety nine, uh, or the physical version is going to be thirty nine ninety nine. So it's, it's actually slightly more expensive to do that, but 
it comes with everything so and a, a nice box so i haven't played this but i know that people really like this they say it's a really good 3d platformer so uh, i might finally bite on it with this one yeah i i plan on getting it it's been really fascinating watching this project evolve over the years mm-hmm. because i i believe it got its start just like on like the something awful like forums yeah just like a couple guys were like there's no classic 3d collect-a-thon platformers anymore what if we just started making one and it kind of like evolved <laughs> it kind of evolved from there from like an experimental joke into like uh, like a darling <laughs> that like yeah. people love yeah. so i know I'm, I'm very keen to get my hands on this finally yeah so that's cool and hey look october <laughs> uh, uh god anyway Right, I think that's everything I want to talk about. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up? No, you got it. Wonderful. Let's take a short break then, and then we'll come back and talk about what we've been playing recently. So, see you in a moment. Who do you work for? No one. Well, I can't have you running around interfering with my jewel business. So, you work for me now. Are you trying to play a trick on me? No, I'm not, I swear! I never lay upon your jewelry! Then why did I find your cat hair on it? <laughs> Don't let that be you! Welcome back for our second segment. We're going to talk about what we've been playing recently. And uh, I think we've both got some cool stuff to, to look at this time. So let's start with you, Chris. What have you been up to? Uh, so I have had the great pleasure this week of getting my hands on Thunder Lotus Games Sundered. Oh, yes. Um, which has frankly floored me. <laughs> Just an absolute... Uh, I believe the I believe the phrasing I used when I was screaming about it on Twitter the other day was that it is a, a triumph of the medium. <laughs> it's uh it's quite quite something special uh so sundered is an open platform uh 2d game uh <laughs> uh which has an aesthetic that is completely hand-drawn mm-hmm. so like, the characters enemies all just beautifully animated um the backgrounds uh, a lot of uh, parallax scrolling layers of just lush, lush drawn objects and, and environments. And uh, the animation is very kind of smooth in a way that's kind of reminiscent of like old 80s rotoscoped animated features. Um, it's kind of difficult to explain unless you see it in motion, but it, it's really yeah. something to behold. Um, so the, the couple things this game does special are, uh, so there's a little little piece of kind of roguelike and procedural generation going on here. So what happens is in your map, um, there's kind of like big rooms, like feature rooms where important things happen, like save points or boss battle rooms or rooms where you might yeah. find an important ability. Those stay static. Um, those never change. But... When you die, the layout of the little unimportant rooms and hallways that interconnect those feature rooms shuffle. Oh, okay. So 
it's interesting because it really keeps you on your toes. Like you can't when you die and you try to get back to where you were last, you can't just kind of mechanically run through the motions. Yeah, there's new challenges and a little and a little bit of exploration and discovery every time you die because of the way those oh, rooms cool. those rooms will reshuffle themselves. Um, yeah, so it really makes it a little more interesting to have to re- recycle the same content over and over because it's always just slightly different where that hallway was or you have to you know one room that you could have run across a hallway to get in between this time you might have to jump up a like a jump up like a climb and then go left you know it just changes subtle ways that you navigate in between each death cycle yes um so that's really cool the other thing that's really special about the game is an emphasis on like horde combat okay so like you know, in a typical game like this, like in Bloodstained or any of the old Castlevanias, you kind of walk around and you encounter enemies, and they're in the same place they've always been, right? Like when you play yeah. when you play Symphony of the Night and you're in the Upside Down Castle, you know what room in the library has the the Cowardly Lion enemy and the Tin Man enemy and etc. Um, yeah. It's it's not really like that in Sundered. Um, so obviously enemies are specific to the regions they're in, but more often than not what will happen is you'll step into a room and an alarm will go off and that room will kind of lock itself down. Almost like oh, okay. almost yeah. like Devil May Cry style. And then you'll just get blitzed with enemies. And when I say blitzed with enemies, I mean like you might be doing acrobatics around twenty or thirty bad guys. <laughs> all just like swarming you. So it's really interesting because it forces you to take advantage of the game's kind of uh, acrobatic uh, feel. So the the game has a very strong emphasis on like a sense of weight and like m- just movement in general is a real joy in this game. Just running yeah. and jumping, um, they they really nailed like a very satisfying feeling to that. Um, so that really ties into the combat. Like you're just doing incredible acrobatics as you're kind of running and retreating and then like striking back and then like creating distance um, because your character is very squishy um, and mm-hmm. she can only take a couple hits, but you have a shield that regenerates with time. So the idea is to do kind of surgical strikes, like pop into the horde, kill like two or three guys, then run. And then you just get treated to these gorgeous visuals of like, a swarm of like 20 monsters chasing you as you retreat while your shield's regenerating and then you turn right back around like unleash a finishing move like wipe 10 of them out then like tumble roll underneath them and then like retreat again there's just, just <laughs> beautiful symphony of movement and these gorgeously animated characters everywhere no yeah, sounds great yeah it's 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 really something special and it, and it's really taking kind of my love of Devil May Cry or Bayonetta-style combat-focused games, but mapping that to a 2D plane with the joy yeah. of exploration, good art and sound direction. Mm. It, it's it's yeah, it's I'm, truly something special. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking at the Steam page now, and like there's there's a GIF of one of I assume one of the bosses. It's like a sort of big, sort of skull spider type thing. Yeah, and the anima- animation is astonishing. That's really something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the bosses are massive. Mm-hmm. So, like, imagine fighting that massive thing you're looking at. And then, like, after you get his health down to, like, a quarter, he just screams into the void. And, like, 
30 giant bees or something come. So then you have to deal with him <laughs> and his attack patterns while also like leading this massive amount of enemies around and striking yeah. at them. Oh, sounds great. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really know much about this game. Um, I, I think I got it confused with something else that's got a very similar title. There's, there's another game called like Severed or something like that, I think. And when you first mentioned it, I thought... I oh, yeah. It, but, yeah, Severed, uh, that's the game by Drinkbox. Mm -hmm. That's that yeah. first-person role-playing game where you, like, cut enemies' limbs off. Yes. Yes, yes. I, I, I think I got muddled up with that. But, yeah, this, yeah, this looks really cool. It's uh, definitely definitely worth a look. Yeah, so it's it's neat. There's there's uh, uh, a morality system. Mm -hmm. um, so that means there's three different endings. Uh, good ending, bad ending, neutral ending. So there's emphasis yep. for replay. Um, okay. There's like, the dark powers or whatever, and... Um, you can either choose to embrace them or deny them or kind yeah. of mix and match. And then um, obviously what choices you make in that regard influence what abilities you get. Um, obviously mm -hmm. to deny the dark powers limits your abilities because you're not getting a cool black magic and stuff. So it's the more challenging route and perhaps the less interesting route, but it's how you get the good ending, you, you know? So. Yeah. Every tutorial I read online is like, fuck denying the dark powers. Like, you're only going to have fun if you embrace the dark powers. Because <laughs> that's how you can, like, fly and, like, shoot lasers and shit if you embrace the dark powers. And there's a massive skill tree in this game. Yeah. Absolutely massive. And every time you die, you get to power yourself up at the skill tree with the currency you've oh, okay. collected. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So a nice sort of gradual progression as you go through, even if you're sort of beating your head against uh, something that's difficult. Yeah, and th this is one that it makes sense to grind in, but the, the sense of the joy of movement and the satisfaction of the combat are such that, like, I find myself seeking out rooms full of bad guys. <laughs> yeah, because it's, because, just, because it's just fun to fight them, yeah. Yeah, just flipping around and rolling and stuff. It, it's just mm. really pleasant. Oh, sounds great. Yeah. Cool. All right. Anything else you've been up to? No, that's 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 it for me. I've, I've got a good stack of new stuff, though, so I should be set for our next couple of conversations. I'm just kind of trying to milk them one by one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. It's sort of, you don't want to sort of spread yourself too thin with uh, stuff that's really good, do you? So, like, you, you can you can end up sort of not appreciating any of them if you try and do too much at once. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. Well, glad you're enjoying that. I know that's that's one you'd, you'd had your eye on for a while, so I'm glad yeah. it, uh, it met your expectations or maybe even exceeded them. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty special. Yeah, good stuff. Right, um, I've got a few things to talk about. Um, the first one is um, a visual novel, which uh, my write-up on has been one of my best performing articles for a very long time for some reason. Um, I think I got, I got retweeted by Faku, who published it. Um, and that has just brought me about a zillion new readers, which is awesome. So thank you for that. Um, so the the visual novel in question is called Love Cube, um, which we actually mentioned on the news uh, a bunch of episodes back when Faku first announced that they were going to be um, uh, localizing and publishing it. Um, and so I, I reached out and uh, saw if they had a review copy available for it, and they did. So I thought I'd play through it and see what was going on, and it's really good. So, um, Love Cube is a um, is a visual novel from um, Neko Work, who are the people who made Neko Para. 
Um, but the art in it is not done by Sayori this time. It's done by an artist called Ishike, who is a very, very prolific uh, Dojinshi artist who's been around for a good number of years at this point, from, from what I can make out. Um, but they're one of those doujinshi artists who's sort of been shrouded in mystery for all that time so like no one seems to really know who they are and obviously some people have met them at events and stuff like that but uh, in I, I don't know a ton about the doujinshi community but it seems there's this sort of unspoken agreement between people involved with it that like even if you meet one of your favorite creators you don't talk about them you don't take photos of them you don't tell anyone who they really are and that sort of thing sure so so it's it's sort of a really interesting sort of element of being shrouded in mystery and so on and that's actually relevant to the game as a whole because the the story in love cube is about a struggling uh, struggling um hentai manga artist who is just about at his wits end at the start of the story um and basically the, the whole story is there's there's a very light sort of spiritual element to it that's sort of about um asking the gods for favors and so on and crossing fates and so on but it's it's basically a piece of wish fulfillment fiction which uh is designed to make anyone who has ever felt oh what's the what's the fucking point of even trying anymore it's designed <laughs> to make people it's designed to make people who have felt that way which i know we both have <laughs> it's designed to make people who felt that way feel better um and so it's 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 an exploration of what would happen if somehow everything, literally everything, could go right. Um, and so this this guy who has been struggling up until this point, he sort of um, enc- encounters these these three girls. Who two of them, it turns out, are people that he used to know back in um, primary and high school, and so on. This comes and to surprise. It, yeah, and it turns out that both of them are these two um, manga and doujinshi artists that he's admired for a long time, and he ends up working with them and that sort of thing. And there's a, there's a whole sort of exploration of them getting together and having a polyamorous relationship and lots and lots of sex. Um, but yeah, just just the whole story of it is really, really nice and uplifting, and it just makes you feel good. It was It was a real pleasure to play just because it was... It wasn't trying to be melodramatic or anything like that. I mean, there's 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 elements of sort of emotional moments and that sort of thing, but the whole thing is just clearly designed to just make whoever's reading it feel good, and that was just such a nice thing to experience. Um, that just by the end of it, I was like, yeah, I really enjoyed that. That was that was great. And on top of all that, it is one of the most gorgeous visual novels I've ever seen. Um, so, if you play Nekopera. That had really good use of live 2D for its characters. So they had a... Um, Sayori is sort of the, the master of live 2D in uh, Neko work. So besides from drawing all the artwork, she's very good at manipulating these character models with sort of very believable, realistic animations and so on. And she's clearly developed her skills even further with this one. So she's taken Ishike's character designs and then animated them. But the the level of detail and subtlety to the animations on these characters is just incredible. So, um, and it's doing stuff that I haven't seen Live Two D do before as well. So it's doing stuff like having arms move uh, more than just a little bit as well. So like someone can actually sort of raise their arm and point, and they can sort of bring it to their face and touch things and that sort of thing but then it's also doing more subtle movements like characters looking from side to side and as you're speaking to someone you can see them gradually breaking out into a smile or welling up with tears or that sort of thing and just like the 
the big animations are impressive but just the amount of subtlety in some of these animations as well is just absolutely incredible it's a gorgeous looking game beautifully presented and it really draws you into the whole experience and makes you really feel like you want to get to know these characters a bit better and so yeah i i went into that thinking it was just going to be throwaway fluff i mean people were describing it as a nuka gay um so just a, a sort of loose excuse for a bunch of sex scenes and the latter half of it is very sex heavy if you're playing the 18 plus version there is an all ages version on steam but what's the point um <laughs> but uh yeah the latter half of it is very sex heavy but each of those moments the the lead up to it it has something to say it has it, it explores all these characters in detail and it's yeah just just a really nice game so check that out if you want something that will make you feel good in more ways than one <clears throat> anyway um aside from that uh, i've just kicked off a new cover game feature on moe gamer uh so i am finally getting around to revisiting the senran kagura series which i've been meaning to do for a long time uh because i've got several games on my shelf that i've either not played very much or haven't played at all so I, I i made a promise to myself that i will i will sit down and i will take care of all of these games so uh over the course of the next however long it takes we're going to be looking at uh senra kagura bon appetit which had a lovely limited run release a while back so there's a package version of that, that i've got uh peach beach splash um burst renewal and peach ball so four games in total um two of which are quite short and two of which are a little bit more substantial and longer so uh, that's going to be interesting to look at um just for this last week i've been revisiting bon appetit which i haven't have played before um but sort of hadn't sort of taken super seriously or anything like that I i've been really taking the time to spend a bit more time with it this week and i i, I don't know i find i find that something that's a lot easier to do when you've got a box copy of it it's it's a really weird and a really kind of stupid thing really but mm -hmm. just just like just like putting the cartridge in the vita rather than just tapping on the download version of it it just makes me want to take that game more seriously um so yeah i've been, I've been really enjoying that i've been playing through some of the stories and reminding myself how good the music in that game is and how how good the music in that series is generally and uh yeah just having a real blast so uh, bon Appetit, if you're not familiar, is a, a spin-off game from the series that abandons the usual sort of beat-em-up and hack-and-slash gameplay um, that the series became known for. And it's actually a, a music game um, that is sort of themed around cooking. So each stage in that game is a cooking battle between two of the characters from Senran Kagura. And they're competing to cook these various dishes. And the way you make sure that they cook a better dish than their opponent is you, you are tapping out rhythms on the D-pad and on the buttons. And it's one of those games where um, if you're a musician like me, you can feel a really nice connection to the music. So the rhythms that you are tapping out, they, it feels like you're sort of playing one of the instruments in the backing track. And this is something that a lot of modern Japanese music games are very good at, like the Hatsune Miku games are really good at that as well. And I, I find that makes those games work best on handheld because it, it makes the handheld that, you, that you've got in your hands almost feel like a musical instrument like you're actually sort of playing along with the music and it's, it's a really nice feeling and bon appetit really really nails that with some interesting rhythms and note charts and stuff to to go through um but there is an easier difficulty level um if you're less experienced with music games or less musically minded and so on so you can you can still get something out of it even if you're you're not as good at them uh, so that's a really fun game so i'm going to be probably writing that up next week and then moving on to peach beach splash which i've been looking forward to playing ever since i actually bought it but that was like two years ago at this point and i still haven't got around to it so um yeah looking forward to finally 
finally settling down to play that a bit um, because I know it's had a, a bunch of updates since then as well and some DLC and I think there's a VR mode in it now as well so I can have some have some fun with that. Yeah, I'm really looking right. forward to your impressions on that one. Th- this game really interests me. I, yeah, like, yeah, I, it, look, it looks it looks really cool. So I'm very curious to to to, to see about it. So, but I'm, uh, uh, I'm sure I'll have more to say on that in the near future. But yeah, go ahead. I was, I because like, like, I describe myself as like a periphery Senran Kagura fan. Mm-hmm. Like I really like the series. I really respect it. I love the characters and the stories and stuff. But like I played Shinobi versus like to the ground like 70 yeah, hours yeah. like 70 hours and like <laughs> i said like after shinobi like, versus i was like i was like i don't need this anymore so like, yeah, like when the, I, I get it yeah yeah like so, <laughs> when like estival versus came out and burst renewal i was like eh, like because i just didn't want more of the same but so like yeah. I, when but i what i am interested in with senrai kagura is these periphery games that come out using the same characters Yes, it's like Peach definitely. Ball, Peach Beach Splash. I love these characters. I want to continue to play fun games with them. So it's great that this other stuff comes out with new mechanics. Yeah, definitely. This is this is one of the things I really love about the series. I, I know some people feel a bit funny about that and wish that they sort of get back to sort of the core storyline and so on. But I, to be honest, at this point, I think I think you've I think you've kind of had that. Yeah. But... <laughs> um, this seems to be what San Rencargo does now, and that's that's fine so far as I'm concerned because I I, I think these the cast of these games I, i've said several times um there are a few franchises where the cast of the games kind of transcends their original context their original game genre and stuff like that like neptune is great for that senran kaga is good for that as well these characters are bigger than the game that originally contained them now and so it's unsurprising that the developers doing stuff with them will want to explore different types of games and different settings and different stories and all that sort of thing so yeah i'm i'm up for whatever they do with it basically so and we supposedly still have senran kagura 7 which is actually the ninth game i think (laughs) because numbering is hard yeah um yeah so that is apparently still on the way but i know they ran into some some issues with uh with sony's shenanigans over that as well so have um, you also seen that yumi has been announced for blaze blue cross tag battle Oh yes, 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 yes. So uh, again, mixed mixed opinions on that because people seem to either love or hate Yumi because like oh she took the top spot from Asuka and it's like it doesn't matter. <laughs> but she, she's a cool character in her yeah, own right, and your, she you? looks like she she looks like she could be fun in in that game as well. And it's it's always cool to see these characters crossing over with other games as well. So so far they've crossed over with Dead or Alive. Um, they appeared in. Oh, what was that other beat em up that Homer appeared in? Uh, I was just about um, to say that that was that was um, Nitro Plus Blasters, that's the one, Heroines yeah. Infinite yeah. Duel, the one that yes. had, the one that had Sonico and a bunch of visual yes. novel characters. That's right. Yeah, Sonico and Saya from Saya Naruto in it as well, didn't it? And that sort of thing. Oh, Saya Naruto just got a re-release on Steam, by the way, if you haven't experienced that before. So, um, one of the most horrific visual novels I've ever played <laughs> in the best possible ways. So, so enjoy that. Um, Yes, so that's what's going on on Mario Gamer at the minute. And the third thing I wanted to talk about uh, is just something I haven't spent a ton of time with it yet. But I, I mean, I've, I've, I technically finished it this morning, or finished, finished the basic scenario in there as well, which is um, Happy Birthdays on Switch. Oh yeah. Um, so this is a game from Toybox, uh, which is the company that was set up by set up by the guy who originally made Harvest Moon, wasn't it? Is that right? I think that's correct, isn't it? I believe so. Um, yeah, so um, and Happy Birthdays is a, a kind of game that um, 
I, I didn't think people made anymore. <laughs> um, it's a it's a god game um, in which you have a little world and you play with it and see what happens. Uh, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> so the the gist of Happy Birthdays is that um, you have this cube shaped world. And um, if you're playing the the basic scenario, which it sort of encourages you to do first, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take this world from a basic uh, a basic sort of position early in time and develop it in such a way that you can produce modern humans on it. Um, and the way you do that is through manipulating the environment. And so um, there's like a an encyclopedia of like I don't know like 255 different species or something like that, that you can scroll through. And these all relate to each other in a kind of evolution tree and that sort of thing. And there's prerequisites for, for various things. And so, like, certain things will only appear if other things have appeared or if other things have gone extinct or if the temperature is above this point or if the moisture level is above this point and so on. So, um, yeah, what, what the actual mechanics of Happy Birthdays are really simple. So most of what you're doing is raising and lowering land, like in the original populace. Um and then you have a few additional skills on top of that, like you can you can create a water source in a particular place, or you can uh, you can apply global warming or global cooling and that sort of thing to raise or lower the temperature. Um, you can sort of um, spread water around the place to make rocky areas a bit more have a bit more vegetation on them and that sort of thing. And uh, through manipulating the environment, you you then sort of there's kind of two aspects to the game there's what it calls micro mode and macro mode and in micro mode you're looking around the world and sort of seeing all the things in there and you are when a new species appear you have to go and find it in the world and capture it to add it to your encyclopedia so you can see its details and sort of what the conditions it's that are required to make it thrive and that sort of thing uh, and then you have macro mode where you zoom out and look at the whole world and you have a you basically put the world on fast forward and watch it sort of develop through tens of thousands of years in a matter of seconds um and you have this little news feed in the corner of what's happening to the various forms of life on your little cube so, so certain things are increasing in number certain ones are declining uh certain ones go extinct new ones appear and that sort of thing and occasionally you have to go in and sort of um provide a bit of your own influence in there so sort of like when a particularly rare type of creature is likely to appear you need to go back into micro mode you need to find the place where it's going to appear and you need to actually sort of give it a little nudge in order to be born in the first place and that sort of thing and yeah it's like i say it's it's a game that could potentially be incredibly complicated because i know i remember a lot of sort of later iterations on the god game formula in like the late 90s and early 2000s they started to get really complicated with all sorts of, of mechanics and things and icons to click on and that sort of thing but this keeps things really simple and i i, I initially thought it was too simple but having played it th this this is not a game about like deep strategy or anything this is a game about sort of poking a thing and seeing what happens it I mean, the developer's name being Toybox is is no sort of coincidence, really. This this is the purest, the purest sense of a sandbox game that I've seen for a long time. It is all about just trying something and seeing what happens. Like, there's no real way to go wrong in this game. You can't mess things up. You can just make things develop in a way that you perhaps hadn't anticipated. Um, and that's what makes it really interesting. As I so said, it's just a fun discovery when that happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's there's this. Um, 
like I say, there's this sort of basic scenario that you can play through that has a sort of very light story to it uh, with you trying to create modern humans and so on. But then there's also a bunch of different scenarios where you have uh, like a particular time limit to make a, a species appear, various requirements, various sort of predefined maps and so on. And then there's a completely free mode you can play as well where you just start with a block of land of a particular size and then you can develop that as you see fit and just see what happens to it over the course of millions of years. And it's just a lovely, lovely game to just sit down and chill out with. Like, there's no pressure on you while you're playing it. It's, it, it is a pure relaxation game. It is it's presented really nicely it's got this lovely sort of cube based look for the world and as you manipulate the world you kind of you kind of change its shape and that sort of thing all the creatures are really cute and heavily stylized but they're based on real things so they're sort of recognizable um it's got this lovely dynamic soundtrack as well so sort of different um your world kind of dynamically generates this musical soundtrack as you move around so like as you go to a, a kind of more densely populated area with more animals and plants and that sort of thing the soundtrack will get thicker there'll be more layers to the musical composition and that sort of thing you zoom out to the side where there's nothing going on and it'll be very quiet and sort of um it feels very lonely and isolated and different creatures make different sounds there's a lovely sort of first person mode as well where you can actually zoom in and kind of fly around your world and sort of spot new things and look at things up close and again you can you can hear all the animals making their sounds and so once humans enter the picture you can hear things like the fires they've lit and that sort of thing and it's it's just a, just a really really charming game that i'm, I'm glad i picked up I, I only picked it up because um uh nisa europe were having a sale on it they were like oh we've got a bunch of our games they've like 12 quid so i thought well 12 quid i'll give that a go yeah i have heard of that it was it was not a game that i'd sort of really made a priority to pick up or check out or anything like that but i sort of had it on the periphery of my vision i thought oh that sounds interesting but i i you know i don't want to spend a lot of money on that or anything but 12 quid definitely i was more than happy to give it a chance and i'm really glad it is because it's it's been a really pleasurable experience to enjoy that so yeah good stuff yeah i'm glad i'm glad it's good i i tried the demo of it and i was just kind of in a place when i tried the demo of it where i shouldn't have tried the demo <laughs> yeah, like I, you know <laughs> i wasn't ready to like learn a new kind of game like i wasn't ready yeah. to engage with something that was like mechanically different so yeah i really do want to grab that the full version eventually and, and give it a proper go yes yes if, if you do grab that i'd recommend grabbing the switch version mm -hmm. from what i hear because the um, for those unaware, there are sort of two separate releases of this. There's the um, the original one was called Birthdays the Beginning, and that came out on PS4 and PC. Uh, and then it was kind of expanded and re-released as Happy Birthdays on Switch. Yeah. And what Happy Birthdays does is, um, first of all, it incorporates all of the DLC that were in the in the original game. I'm not sure what that was offhand, but I know it's all there in Happy Birthdays. Um, and secondly, they've just sort of tweaked a few of the mechanics to make it a bit better balanced from the sound of things. So apparently in the original, in order to do things like make water sources and uh, those things that I described as skills earlier on, apparently they were sort of based on items in the original one. And they were a bit easy to abuse in that. Uh -oh. Um Whereas in Happy Birthdays, you have the, you sort of collect stars by achieving various things and capturing new things, and then you use you spend a certain number of stars on things, and that kind of puts an inherent cap on the sort of things that you can do. So you still you still generally collect enough stars to be able to experiment a bit, but you can't kind of abuse them too much to make things too easy or boring for yourself. That makes sense. Um, 
and then there's a, a whole bunch of sort of achievements that you can get in there as well and all the achievements come with um like little things you can pop down in your world so like everything you achieve you like get a you like get a particular stature or a flag you can put somewhere and that sort of thing so you can really customize what you've created by the end of it and so yeah i'm really looking forward to experimenting with that and seeing what sort of different types of world i can create see how many mon- monsters and animals i can give birth to and that sort of thing so yeah it's it's a really fun game worth checking out all right uh, i think i've done there so you didn't have anything else to talk about i don't think so let's take a short break there before we move on to our main topic so we'll see you in a moment Welcome back. So, for our main topic today, I wanted to talk to Chris about his um, sort of grand theory of RPGs. So, um, <laughs> Chris, before we before we jump in, can you just tell us a little bit about sort of your your academic background, if you will, because that's where a lot of this comes from, isn't it? What we're about to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I have a master's degree in popular culture. Um, mm-hmm which we've discussed uh, a little bit before when we talked about how much I hate Metroidvania. And this is very much yep. going to be a similar discussion to our death to Metroidvania discussion in a lot of ways. Um, and what my specific field of expertise uh, was when I was in graduate school was genre studies, right. um, uh, specifically as it relates to film. But obviously through that, I learned a lot of skills that I use to contextualize the way I think about games. Um, I was very lucky to study under a, a published and quite well-known scholar of genre studies specifically. Um, and so what I have is a very specific skill set for kind of contextualizing the language around how we think about genre, uh, understand, mm-hmm. understanding um, when a label is useful, when a label is not useful, and kind of the rules and the mechanics that make up a, a useful title for categorization. Because yeah. genre can be uh, very bad uh, mm-hmm. be- because it can communicate information poorly, or, yeah. or genre and labels can be very good, uh, specifically when they provide us with a shorthand way of contextualizing a lot of information about a particular uh, popular culture artifact in this case a game yes um so just as we described when i was down on the term metroidvania it was because to me that was a bad label because in order to understand what that communicated you have to under you have to know what metroid is and you have to know what castlevania is mm-hmm. it does it doesn't preclude vo- it doesn't require you to understand anything about game mechanics, game design, or have a vocabulary about game mechanics and game design. It just requires you to have played Castlevania and Metroid and know what things distinguish those. So it's yeah. not it's not a useful label if you were to talk about games with someone who wasn't into games. Yes. Um, and that's an example of a bad genre label. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the argument I'm here to make today 
is that the way we talk about RPGs, specifically the kind of RPGs you and I like, mainly what is, consi what is considered now the JRPG, um, I have tremendous issue with the JRPG as a label, and, yes. uh, and subsequently the quote-unquote WRPG as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, because region of origin is not a genre. Yes. Region of origin does not communicate anything about mechanics, design, or features. All it communicates is where the thing was made. Mm -hmm. And we don't call Bayonetta a J-action game, or we no. don't call Ridge Racer a J-racer. Um, so, why? <laughs> why? Why are we... Why do we, you know... So, when my initial anger with this, um, as most of my anger comes when contextualizing these kind of labels and stuff, comes from my background in film studies. Yes. Um, so, when we talk about film, we only incorporate regionality um, as a genre when we're talking about very specific periods of time or movements. Mm -hmm. So, we talk about, like, the French New Wave. Yes. And, th and that describes a very specific period in time and a very specific handful of films that were made during that time that have very specific features. Yeah. But if 15 years later someone in Germany were to make an, art an artsy film that featured some of the same features of French New Wave, that wouldn't be called a French New Wave film. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? So you can, you can see how things come along that challenge these labels, but we don't use them in the film industry across broad swaths of genre. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's similar in in most other forms of art, isn't it? I mean, like you look at you look at like the visual arts, and you have very specific time periods and movements of people who create a particular type of effect. But you you also have people who, in the more modern age, they try and recapture the same kinds of techniques that they were doing, perhaps putting their own spin on them things. And you wouldn't call them like impressionists or cubists or whatever you you would you would talk about the artists and perhaps the influences that they were drawing and where they came from but you wouldn't necessarily group them under the same heading as the people who invented these styles right and it's the same with same with music as well so like you can talk about the various ages of how western art music developed you can talk about baroque classical romantic 20th century and so on but again you have people who in the modern age are composing pieces of music in the style of Mozart, in the style of Beethoven, and so on. They they are not classical compositions in the sense of the classical era. I mean, don't get me started on just the use of classical music as a term. <laughs> but, For sure. Um, but like, yeah. if I if I were to be a composer of modern instrumentals and I were to make something in the style of Mozart, mm -hmm. no one would be like, "This guy's making German classical." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you, you know, you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like it's it's not it's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. So the understanding we have of JRPG is that it kind of describes a certain a certain collection of mechanics or design principles. Yes. But but that's a fallacy mm -hmm. because many of the games that we're describing with this JRPG label have have radically different mechanics and gameplay styles. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
and, and even even so going back to the very roots of the genre uh you know many people consider dragon quest on the original dragon quest on the famicom as kind of the first one of the first readily accessible jrpgs Ex excluding that dragon and princess or whatever we talked about on the, <laughs> the pc 98 but like yeah. a lot of people in the in the popular imagination talk about dragon quest as kind of the inception of this uh -huh. but, but like mechanically visually dragon quest itself was so inspired by ultima yeah yeah that to really consider jrpg a genre is ridiculous because jrpgs themselves have their roots in western computer role-playing games with their roots in dungeons and dragons yeah so, well, i was, I was going to say not not even just computer games like if you look at the original final fantasy which i've been playing on youtube recently so much of that is just pulled wholesale from the dungeons and dragons books just mm -hmm. the original rule books for Dungeons and Dragons. So much of the original Final Fantasy is just this is Dungeons and Dragons yes. without the license. <laughs> yes. So so it's weird that we as we ascribe all of these features to a Japanese role playing game, and it's true that like Japanese developers took what they liked about Western tabletop role playing, fused it with anime, added certain elements of linearity limited mm -hmm. amount of control you can have of your characters and those are some of the things we associate with the jrpg label today but those yes. things have their roots in western role-playing mechanics yes so to make this distinction between jrpg and wrpg it's goddamn ridiculous well it's it's not even always true is it though i i, I mean like 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 you say the most commonly cited difference between jrpg and western rpg is tends to be if you boil it down to it it's whether or not you can create your own character yeah uh, and, and whether whether or not you are playing as quote unquote you or whether you are playing as someone who is being pre-composed for you that that is the the difference that most people cite between them but that's not always even true like there's so many uh, there's so many games that have been developed in japan and developed in china developed in korea where you, where you can create your own character you have a custom character you are playing the story as you and so on that yeah even that isn't a useful descriptor really sure so you can you can see why this breaks down for me as a useless label mm -hmm. um and it, the, the waters get muddied even further because what do we what happens when a western studio and this has become extremely prevalent in the modern indie scene. We just talked about um, uh, in Indivisible earlier in yeah. this episode. So like, when a Western studio makes a game that's celebrating or aping this ki these kind of design features, we call it a JRPG anyway. Yeah. It's, it tells us nothing <laughs> about what this game <laughs> is. Uh, so... You know, talking about the things we tra traditionally kind of the JRPG label was associated with, uh, like we talked about, a, a lack of control over your character, not creating a custom character. Uh, usually people associate a certain amount of linearity and a lack of freedom in terms of the plot, like a heavier, a heavier emphasis on a guided narrative uh, mm -hmm. that, that moves point A to point B. And many years ago, one of the big ones was also uh, dedicated instanced battle sequence screens yes but even as early as the ps2 era that stuff started to break down considerably 
Yes, yes um, definitely. Uh, I think about titles like Rogue Galaxy or Final Fantasy XII. Those didn't mm-hmm. feature isolated combat screens anymore. Yeah. So were those JRPGs? I don't think anyone would argue that Rogue Galaxy or Final Fantasy XII isn't a JRPG. But here they are missing a feature that used to be considered integral. Because yes. like when Final Fantasy XII came out, the fights looked and felt similar to Knights of the Old Republic. Mm-hmm. A yes. west a western RPG. Right? So mm-hmm. but it was still a JRPG because it was developed in Japan. So like the the rule set for when we do and don't apply this label get really murky. Cause sometimes just having been made in Japan is enough. Like I've heard people refer to Dark Souls as a JRPG. Yes, yes. And good God, no. <laughs> like it, it fulfills none of, of the standard requirements that we traditionally would have used for that label. So mm-hmm. when the when the when the rules of the label are unclear, the label is useless. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we do about that then? Well, as always, we look to mechanics. Mm-hmm. So the same things that help us to neutralize that label and consider whether or not it's useful is also the same thing we need to boil down and discuss. Yep. So my initial anger for this label really came as a fan of here. I mean, I'm going to say Japanese role-playing games, right? But very distinctly, yep. I'm not talking about it as a genre sub-label. I'm just saying the different types of role-playing games that have been developed in Japan which are the kind of games that I have a lot of knowledge, expertise, and get a lot of enjoyment from. Mm-hmm. So a lot of time I think about Japanese role-playing games, and I started thinking, what are some of the Japanese role-playing games that we don't call JRPGs? Mm. Um, and one of and two of the genres that I typically don't see with the JRPG label applied, even though they have some of the JRPG features... Uh, are action RPGs. Yep. I'm thinking most specifically about stuff like East or the upcoming Onanaki or the Secret yes. of Mana games. Uh, and SRPGs. Yep. Things like Final Fantasy Tactics, Hoshigami, or even the grander scale stuff. Things like Fire Emblem. Mm-hmm. Yep. We, we don't really call those JRPGs because they have, yeah. they have very distinctive features. Yes. I would perhaps even lump in dungeon crawlers with that as well. Yeah, they, they've widely become their own. Like I've seen DRPG be thrown around for dungeon crawlers, yeah. and I think that's good. I think that's a useful, a useful genre because I see DRPG, and I have very specific thoughts that come to mind. Right. Yeah. So this is a game with a looser focus on narrative, where I'm likely to build a custom party with exploration and. Build character building for strength to tackle new challenges in the dungeons as the emphasis on gameplay. Yes. That, that's my expectation, based on seeing that this is, oh, this is a DRPG, this is a dungeon crawler. Mm-hmm. But DRPGs have so much in common with JRPGs. Are all DRPGs JRPGs if they come from Japan? What about, <laughs> what about Legend of Grimrock? Yeah. Like, also DRPGs, as we traditionally call them, especially in the Japanese sense are all the prodigy of wizardry, yep. which is an American franchise that was purchased eventually by a Japanese developer and now is in the hands of Japanese developers, but wizardry originated in the West. Mm-hmm. So 
once again, we need to take regionality out of it and focus on mechanics, right? When we use DRPG, we can lump Legend of Grimrock and Wizardry and Heroes of Might and, and Might and Magic along along with our Merry Skelters and our Etrian Odysseys because they're all part of that same family. Yes. When we make regionality part of the discussion, we lose the ability to do that because we lose focus on mechanics. So, um, what do we do? What are, what are the mechanics that really define what makes one RPG different from the other? Like, how do we make these all part of the same family? Uh, for me, part of the tool I use when contextualizing this is thinking about Final Fantasy. Yes. Uh, because Final Fantasy is a great example. Final Fantasy, in its history, um, has always made experimenting with mechanics part of its identity. Yes. Uh, much to fans' chagrin, right? It's like, oh my god, FF, <laughs> FF13 is different, FF12 is different, FF15 is different. Yeah, but like every FF has been marginally different year over yeah. year. Evolved with technology, evolved with new ideas. Yeah, I was going to say, back when I covered Final Fantasy XV, there was, there was a good quote from, I think it was the World of Final Fantasy's producer, I think, who said that Final Fantasy is a series of constant reinvention. Mm-hmm. And then, and so to prove that, I went through all the Final Fantasy games and said, right, this is what this game does, this is what it does differently from the previous ones. And even the ones that people tend to assume are similar to one another, like, say, the three SNES games, yeah. people tend to lump those together as being very similar. No, so they're not similar. Radically different. Me- yeah, in terms of mechanics, progression the way you build your characters, the way the story's delivered. Yeah, yeah. those are all very different. I, they, they look similar in terms of presentation, but mechanically they are very different. So you can see my frustration because oh, yeah. no yeah. one no one that you talk about games with would ever separate the mainline Final Fantasy games. Take out the MMO ones, obviously. Take out 11 and 14. No one would... No one would tell you that the mainline FF games are a different genre. Mm-hmm. Like, has anyone ever looked you straight in the face and tried and told you that the mainline FF games are... Like, even though 15 is radically different from 6, people tend to consider them all part of the same genre, right? The JRPGs, they're Final Fantasy's JRPGs. Um, so, to me... Um, the primary way I like to contextualize role-playing games is mechanically how do we get how do we engage with combat? Mm-hmm. That to me is the core of the question. Um, so DRPGs we talked about they generally approach combat almost always from a first-person perspective as part of tied to dungeon exploration generally also from a first person perspective so it's the way com- it's the way combat relates to the rest of those mechanics it defines it as a game uh, when we talk about action rpgs things like ease or zelda or mana uh, what really defines it to me is the action of the combat you've got a, you've got a dedicated attack button generally speaking you've got a jump button and you don't use menus at all as part of the combat you just slash your way through the combat using combos and whatever. Strategy RPGs, things like Final Fantasy Tactics, or uh, Hoshigami, uh, or God Wars, very specifically feature this overhead perspective where you have a large collection of units, and the movement and placement of them on the field 
is important to the combat. Once yeah. again, different. Um, but that doesn't really answer how we contextualize what's traditionally considered a JRPG. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also there's also some games that kind of blur those lines a bit, aren't they? Like I'm thinking specifically correct. of something like something like Kingdom Hearts, which has action RPG style hack and slash, but also has menus. Yeah, yeah. So you can see you can see how it gets extremely challenging. Mm-hmm. And so, like, is Kingdom Hearts a JRPG? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't know, but it's because it's useless. Um, but for me, it's menus, right? So like, talking about the way the, the lines blur, um, I think of the Tales of series as yep. a really primary example. So, like, in my younger days, when I w- would try to kind of conceptualize a theory of this, um, my focus was always on action. And yep. my most primitive version of this theory focused on whether or not a game had a dedicated attack button. Right. Whether or not attacks happened automatically, whether or not you made a menu choice to attack, or whether or not there was a dedicated attack button. But that quickly dissolved when I started thinking about the Tales of and the Star Ocean games, which I love very mm-hmm. much. They all have dedicated attack buttons. But I would never lump uh, Tales of game with East yeah. as the same genre. Radically different, because the Tales of games in their earliest incarnations had instance battle screens yep. and menus that you could pull up that paused the action in order to make AI tweaks to your party members, select spells, select items. So that felt very different than what would traditionally be an action RPG. This cue is much closer to something like Final Fantasy. Also, they're not turn-based. Yeah. So turn-based was another thing I used to originally focus on. Like, considering turn-based RPGs a genre of their own. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true, though, because if we go back to using Final Fantasy as our core model, um, Final Fantasy did away with traditional turn-based combat as far back as 4. Yeah. 4 introduced the active time system, and you could make a menu choice to have it be completely active time-based, eliminating traditional turn-based structure. It wouldn't stop at all for you to make your decisions if you wanted it to. So turn-based isn't the answer either. So for me, it all comes back to menus. What we've traditionally dubbed as a JRPG or a WRPG have menus as a core part of the combat, specifically selections within menus to do things like use items, use use spells. Um, So taking the Tales of series as an example, if we don't use turn-based or instance battle sequences as part of what defines them, we can still tie a through line from Tales of straight to Final Fantasy by its ability to have menu selections as a core feature of combat. What this also allows us to do, which is what I've always wanted to do, is actually unify stuff like Divinity, um, Planescape Torment, um, Knights of the Old Republic, and and unite them with their Japanese cousins as part of one genre. Because I don't really feel like they're that different. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's what I'm proposing today, is is the MRPG. (laughs) (laughs) Is is a menu, and menu selections a core part of the game's combat. Yeah. And, And if so, I would consider those games related to each other. 
unless, as we discussed with the dungeon RPG, the DRPG, there's a radical, uh, an absolutely radical game-defining feature, i.e., and focus, i.e., dungeon navigation. Yeah. So King Kingdom Hearts is always going to be an action RPG to me. The ca the cadence mm -hmm. the cadence of the combat is such that this doesn't really apply. Yes, yes, the, I'd, I'd agree with that. There's a less heavy emphasis on strategic choice through menu mm. than there is in something like Final Fantasy XII. Yes. Right? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've, I've only played sort of Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2, not any of the spin-offs or Kingdom Hearts 3, but in my experience, the, the menus in that are basically, all they're doing is they are changing the context of a button push in the in the action sequences so rather than your button push being your attack button it becomes your magic button or your cure button or your item button or whatever sure so, yeah that's a little bit different from what you're talking about here definitely yeah i'm just really looking for a way to use genre to acknowledge that games like final fantasy 12 and knights of the old republic share common dna yes yes does that make me a heretic probably <laughs> but but this is this is where I am. I, I, I hate JRPG as a label. I'm never gonna stop using it because it's what the community understands and it's catchy yeah. and it's catchy and it's easy. But yeah, I do think it's useless. Yeah, that that's the difficult thing, isn't it? When when a term becomes so ingrained in the popular consciousness that like if you started talking to someone about an MRPG, they wouldn't have any clue what you were talking about. But right, I mean, if you t if you took the time to explain to them what you mean by that, you, they would probably nod and say, "Okay, yeah, that makes sense." But you t you say JRPG to someone, and they they generally have an idea of what you mean. But as you say, there is so much kind of diversity within that yeah. that you yeah, it, it it's not helpful. It's not really helpful. It, it gives you it gives you a very very broad idea of maybe what to expect but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's going to be something you're into this kind of sort of crosses over with another thing about genre that i i don't think tends to get discussed enough with games and is probably an episode in its own right to be honest but um which is the fact that when we're talking about games you've really got two two types of genre that you need to consider one of which is the mechanical genre which we focused on today and yes. the other one is the subject matter genre sure. which is often gets sort of pushed to the side in many cases and so like there is not i'm not going to say there is not there is, because there are people like me who like most things but there are very few people who who like just jrpgs like sure. someone who likes jrpgs they might like final fantasy they might like dragon quest they're not necessarily going to like something like Neptunia. They're not necessarily going to like something like Mary Skelter. For various reasons. It could be to do with subject matter, it could be to do with mechanics and so on. But but yeah, there's we need better ways of talking about the distinctions between these games. And I think sort of thinking about the thematic and the subject matter genre of them as well is, ju is just as important as, as, as thinking about the actual mechanical context of them. Because... It's a really complicated recipe of things that go together to decide whether or not you're going to enjoy a game or not. Yeah. Welcome to video games. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's it, it, it's not as simple as saying this is a JRPG, you're going to like it or you're not going to like it. So yeah, it's 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 a really interesting discussion to have, I think. So So in in your mind then, sort of as as it exists at the moment then, so 
we, we've talked about sort of the, the menu-driven RPGs and so on. Are, are there any other sort of distinctions that sort of immediately spring to mind when we're talking about this genre or these <sighs> genres, if you prefer? I mean, to, to probably, but I haven't sussed them out yet. <laughs> yeah. But, like, uh, part of me wants to consider games like Tales of or Valkyrie profile wherein there's a significant action and combo based element to the combat as something mm-hmm. separate and distinct from traditional turn-based role-playing games like i'd like to think of i'd like to think of another way to kind of separate those and make it clear yeah i i think that makes sense because again there is an element there that some people will be able to engage with more readily than others you know and it's in that case it it is a mechanical thing it's the fact that some people don't like having that dedicated attack button some people don't like having to sort of manually unleash these combos and so on yeah even though sort of structurally it resembles stuff like the earlier final fantasies and so on yeah. and so yeah i think that that is a helpful distinction to make but you, you you're right how, how do you describe that how I mean, do you other than, other than saying it's a tales game i, mean, I, I go <laughs> which, which i go is, back to uh you know a story i go back to in this instance uh for those who don't know, I, I spent quite a bit of my time in game retail when I was younger, and um, at a very at a local shop. So, like, I kind of had it was like a local, privately owned shop. So, I kind of had a bit of a reputation in the area as a, a guy who you could come to for recommendations, not just yeah. not just a guy you could come to to tell you what he liked, but like I would listen to you and you could tell me what you liked, and I would find the right game for you. I, like that's something mm-hmm. that's something I'm good at because I pay attention to things like mechanics. And I yeah. and I can and I can see the connective threads between different games. Um, so um, you know, one of the stories, one of my great disappointments <laughs> in doing that was uh, I had a guy who I had sold pretty heavily on um, Dragon Quest VIII on the PS2, yeah. um, and he loved it. And he came back a couple months later and said, "Well, what else do you recommend?" And I said, "Oh, you really like Dragon Quest II." Um, maybe, you know, I hooked him up with Rogue Legacy. I'm sorry, Rogue, Gal- yeah. Rogue Galaxy, not Rogue Legacy. Uh, Rogue Galaxy, oh, this is also level five. This is also a huge RPG with loads to collect and see and do. And uh, he returned it the next day because it was an action game. Oh. <laughs> and he, he didn't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm getting flashbacks to Final Fantasy XV's release now when people were describing it as having Kingdom Hearts combat. Uh, no! Uh, no! Uh, <laughs> uh, no. King, Final F- let, let's lay this out on the line. People really don't understand Final Fantasy XV's combat mechanics. Uh-huh. Final Fantasy XV is a game about managing time and distance. Yeah. If you are pressing the attack button to execute combos in Final Fantasy XV, you're playing it wrong. You mm-hmm. you hold the attack button to telegraph to Noctis that he should be dedicating his time to attacking. You release that button to essentially end that turn when it is safe to do so. When it is no when it is no longer safe to do so. If you were envisioning Final Fantasy XV's combat as button mashing action you're ignoring the fundamental systems that are underlying everything that works in it which is yes. man- which is managing time and proximity yes yeah yeah absolutely i yeah i i remember having this discussion with you back back when it released and <laughs> yeah 
there, 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 I've I've witnessed and sort of been on the periphery of a lot of arguments about this, but yeah, it it's it seems so obvious, but no, it's it's one of those things where people sort of see the basic way that it looks and they make assumptions about the mechanics and no you're absolutely right though so there is there is a very strong distinction in final fantasy 15 between sort of switching between almost switching between stances i guess isn't it yeah so mm-hmm. i mean you've got your you've got the attack button which you hold and you've got the defend button which you also hold so it's not a game about button mashing it is a game about switching between those two stances and also knowing when neither of them are applicable yeah so like when you should be moving around yeah it um, takes yeah. it takes 13's philosophy of managing modes and simply applies that to to a world where there's no longer instance combat screens. Yes. 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 And I mean 13 is also the victim of this, isn't it? So like Surely. how many people have described 13 as auto battle? I mean I mean the game itself doesn't help this by referring to it as auto battle, but <laughs> But 13's combat is not about the micromanagement of menus like in previous Final Fantasy games. Right. 13 is all about looking at the the macro. It's all about looking at the big picture. It's about looking at the composition of your party and how that... It's a, it's about thinking of your party as a single coherent unit rather than three individual characters. Correct. And it's, a, and it's about deciding what is the appropriate composition of that party for what is currently happening so yeah you're right in a lot of ways it's very similar to what you're doing with final fantasy 15 so it's like deciding when it is safe to go on the all-out offensive and put everyone in like the commando or the ravager roles and deciding when it's important to have some defenses in place when it's important to have some debuffs in place when it's important to have some healing ready and yeah that 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 just gets boiled down to oh it's it's also battle by people and yeah that drives me nuts <laughs> and that and that to me is what allows us to make a clear dividing line between final fantasy 15 and kingdom hearts yes so i can King, kingdom hearts is pure action even though there are menus present it lacks it lacks an element of strategic decision making yes which is inherent to final fantasy 15 if you're playing it correctly Yes. If you're playing it as the designers intended it to be played, Final Fantasy XV is a game full of on-the-fly strategic decision-making. Yes. So, that's what allows me to keep those games together within that one genre. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, yeah, I... I, I yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from completely with that, and I, it, it's a it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because Surely. it's I, as you say, because so many of these terms have become so accepted and widespread. I mean, going back to Metroidvania as well. I I, I was looking at the Steam page for Sundered, and the word Metroidvania was all over the place. Well, from the publishers the themselves, or from the developers, the, the developers themselves. Yeah, from the developers themselves, from the publishers, from the people in the Steam reviews, from the publications, the professional publications who are reviewing it as well. Like one of the first, the first review from a professional site there was from Rock Paper Shotgun, and it says this is a great Metroidvania. Yeah, it's like oh, <laughs> yeah, because because of all the you know all the procedurally generated elements that Metroid is famous for. Yes, um, yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> But yeah, these it's 
Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not saying that this is the answer. No, I'm no. not saying the MRPG is the answer. Please come at me with a better theory. I, I'm just using this theory as a way to start a dialogue about a more constructive way to think about these games. Yeah, because it's well, important I, to me that we use labels that are informative. Yeah, I I, I think it just speaks to a, a broader point, really, which is that it's it's not necessary to stick labels on everything because yeah. if you are talking about something by far the best thing you can do is you can explore it on its own terms talk about what it does maybe compare it to some other things that do, that do similar things but the important thing in most cases is to is to look at what that one thing is doing sure its historical context can be important because that could be how it's got to a particular point and it could be building on something else's experiences but each individual thing is its own thing and it's worth considering that by itself rather than just saying oh this is a bit like x mm -hmm. yeah well yeah. you know in genre studies we always say genre is only useful until it's not yeah you know and sometimes you have to take a step back yeah definitely all right then. Well, anything else to add to that? No, I mean, I, I think that's good. Unless you want to poke some holes in my arguments. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I mean, you, I, I, I agree with a lot of things you're saying, and I try and make a point in my writing and my videos to try, to try and do what I've just described, to try and explain things on their own terms, and yeah. try specifically to avoid drawing too many comparisons to other things because. Yes, they can be helpful if people are already familiar with those other things, like we talked about with Metroidvania, but if you are talking to someone who is completely unfamiliar with them, it doesn't help them at all. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, and so it's important to be able to, to focus on those things and say what just this one thing is doing. Yeah. Well, you know, that, yeah. that's at the core of my problem with Metroidvania, at the core of my problem with JRPG. All the term JRPG says is this is like other RPGs that are from Japan. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It, all, all Metroidvania says is this is like Metroid and this is like Metroid and Castlevania. It doesn't mean anything if you don't know if you've never played Metroid or Castlevania. This yeah. this is like all other RPGs from Japan. It doesn't say anything if you've never played an RPG from Japan. So what are this isn't even getting it? This isn't even getting into the times when those terms are misapplied as well. For sure, so, for sure. So like, yeah. we we need to find labels and shorthand. That are immediately informative about what this game does, not what, mm -hmm. not what, not what other games this is like, but what it does. What are its yeah. features? What are its defining features? Mm -hmm. So, to me, combat that incorporates deci de decisive strategic choices, often with the aid of menus, is what mm -hmm. sets these games apart from an action game or a military-themed strategy game, specifically. Yes, yes, yes. I say so, and uh, yeah, I think that's probably a good place to hold that discussion there. As as you said when we were sort of preparing this, there's not necessarily a definitive conclusion we can reach here because it it, it is a dialogue. It's something that people will develop over time. Mm -hmm. People will get better at, at discussing these things over time, and so yeah, yeah. I mean, if you've got any thoughts on it, dear listener, then we'd love to hear them. So do please uh, do please feel free to yes. share your thoughts on those. Be gentle, because my ego is fragile. <laughs> come at him bro 
Uh, right. Anyway, um, would you like to tell people where to find you online? Sure. As always, you can find my artwork at MrGilderPixels.com or on uh, Twitter and Instagram at MrGilderPixels. I've also got a Facebook page. MrGilderPixels page is the, the name mm-hmm. of that. So uh, please enjoy following me. Got a bunch of cool new commissions in the works as we speak. So always got something new to show off. Excellent. Did I see you were doing a commission of Arthur from Ghosts and Goblins? Yes, I very specifically got a, a, a request to do Arthur in his undies. <laughs> doing like his like crazy leap with like his like arms flapping behind his head. Um, oh, it fantastic. will be one of my bigger paintings ever because that's a very large sprite. Yeah, and quite a complex one as well, isn't it? There's quite a few colors in there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. Yeah, well, good luck with that. It looks uh, it looks like a, a good challenge for you. So that's cool. Um, yeah, and as always, you can find me on MarioGamer.net writing about all sorts of various things. As I say, we've at the time of recording, I've just kicked off a new cover game feature on the Senran Kagura series, more specifically the slightly later games in this series. So uh, over the course of the um, next few articles, I'll be looking at Bon Appetit, Peach Beach Splash, Burst Renewal, and Peach Ball. So look out for those things. Um, on YouTube, I'm uh, playing through the Final Fantasy games as my Final Fantasy marathon at the moment. We're currently partway through Final Fantasy 1. Just cleared the uh, the Cavern of Earth, if I remember correctly. Um, also playing uh, Warriors Orochi on Wednesdays. Uh, finally coming towards the end of that game it's been 50 weeks now that we've been playing that so thank you for sticking with that if you have done if you haven't then well whatever i'm having a good time um (laughs) and uh of course there's my atari a to z project on tuesdays and thursdays and saturdays as well where i'm exploring atari 8-bit games atari st games and the games in the atari flashback classics compilation respectively so uh thanks for all your support of that thank you very much for watching and or listening and we'll see you again next time Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.